Last time we talked American Girl on the podcast, everyone was pretty excited. Well, actually, everyone was really excited. I hope that you are equally excited, or maybe even more excited, for another AG episode. This one focused on a gal named Kirsten Larson. On today's show, my guests and I take a close look at the first book in her series, which was called, of course, Meet Kirsten. The book was written by Janet Shaw and published in 1988, in the early, early days of the American Girl franchise. It tells the story of Kirsten and her family making the journey from Sweden to Minnesota in 1854. They are seeking out better farmland and a better life. Meet Kirsten may be just 80 pages, but it packs an emotional punch, and you'll hear all about that on this episode. We talk about the heartbreak we experience when, spoiler alert, Kirsten loses her best friend, the fear we experience when Kirsten gets lost in an unknown city, and the relief we experience when Kirsten and her family finally reach their destination. We discuss how this story and what it has to say about immigration and inclusivity is so resonant today. We chat about how the book can be read as an introduction to xenophobia and a how-to guide for how to fight that xenophobia. And we also go in-depth about the American Girl brand more broadly, including our personal experiences with the dolls when we were growing up. Today's book is called Meet Kirsten, but I would also love you to meet my guest, Kate Kennedy. Kate is a Chicago-based entrepreneur, author, and pop culture commentator who is best known for her namesake brand, Instagram, and podcast, Be There in Five. I recently went down a bit of a rabbit hole with her show, and I am very into it. Grounded in the topics that distract Kate on a daily basis, Be There in Five is a long-form podcast that explores all facets of popular culture in a thoughtful, analytical, and comedic format. She covers a wide range of topics reflecting the current zeitgeist, celebrities, influencers, social media, and entertainment, but also focuses on the humor found in re-examining the 90s aughts zeitgeist as an adult, from AIM to Xenon. Can you say throwbacks? Beyond the more lighthearted topics, Kate is also a seasoned entrepreneur, former market research professional, and author that is committed to leveraging her experience to talk about meaningless topics in a meaningful way. Best known for her deep dives, Kate's monologue-style episodes about different topics within the millennial ethos are the most popular. Think being a bridesmaid, TikTok, sororities, 90s purity culture, Mormon bloggers, influencers, and dating on Bumble, to name a few. With each episode of Be There in Five, Kate takes the conversations I have with my friends about the things we are totally fascinated by and makes them sound a lot smarter and more comprehensive. Learn more at www.bethereinfive.com and on Instagram and Twitter at bethereinfive. Check out her show on all of your favorite podcatchers. Big thanks to Kate for joining me on this episode. A big thanks also goes out to everyone already following SSR on social media. If you're not, I would love to have you join the party. Find the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. You can also search for The SSR Podcast community on Facebook if you're looking for a smaller, chattier group. I also share extra previews of upcoming episodes in that group, so it's a great place for you if you're someone who wants to read along with the podcast. And if you're sick of people telling you that social media is nothing but a time suck, let me tell you about a way that you can make your Instagram time productive. Okay, so if you love this episode of SSR, which you will, you should totally take a screenshot of it wherever you're listening and post it to your Instagram story. This is a fun way for you to communicate your thoughts on the podcast with me and to spread the word about the show, which I really appreciate. If you're feeling so inspired, I would also really appreciate it if you would leave a five-star rating or review of the podcast on iTunes. And it's not just about my ego or bragging rights. Those ratings and reviews are super important as far as bringing more book lovers to the show. Doing this only takes a few minutes and it goes a long way. If you've left one already, thank you so much. Two other ways you can support the show if that's something you want to do. One, shopping for SSR merch. Check out www.ssrpodcast.com shop to get your own SSR bookmarks, stickers, t-shirts, and tote bags. Two, becoming a Patreon sponsor. Patreon allows super fans of content created by independent creators like me to support those creators with their dollars. For just a few dollars a month, like as little as just a dollar, literally, you can become a patron. In the process, you're helping make your favorite content a reality, and you get exclusive rewards in return. SSR patrons get things like SSR merch, bonus episodes, newsletters, voice notes from me, and more. Go to www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast, or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the show for more details. Thanks to all of the SSR patrons listening now. 
It is no secret that 2020 has been a tough year for all of us, and independent booksellers are no exception. I am so proud to be part of the Libro FM family so I can help spread the word about how we can better support those independent booksellers. With the holiday shopping season upon us, we can really impact Q4 for these indies. Libro FM gives you the chance to do that while you shop for audiobooks. The audiobooks you get from Libro FM are exactly the same as the ones you would purchase from big corporations, and they're the same price too. Plus, SSR listeners get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Before we get into this episode, I am reminding you again to vote. If you are listening to this episode the day it goes live, Election Day is just two weeks away. Our voices and the power of our votes have truly never been more important. Please, listeners, make a plan to vote now, and be sure to follow through with that plan on or before November 3rd. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Kate. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thank you for having me. I am so excited. I've been looking forward to this recording for a long time, not only because it's you and I think you're amazing, but also because it's American Girl. And <laughs> anytime I even talk about American Girl, even on my Instagram for like one second, everybody freaks out. I know. It's it's a funny thing where you realize how important they were to people based on the reaction. I get that too, because I mean, I could talk about them all day, but I always then get a little embarrassed. Like, do I know too much about the the, the girls? And uh, go, go figure, people are also as enveloped in their lives as, as you are. Yeah. I mean, you're very much in the right place. And if you would like to talk about them all day, feel free. I have time to burn. Um, I'm really excited. And yes, you are in good company with somebody who knows a lot about the American girls. But I have to say, I, I think maybe Kirsten is the one of the sort of original historical gals that I know the least about. So I would love for you to share a little bit about your American Girl experience. Feel free to tell the long version if you want. Um, (laughs) And maybe why you wanted to go back to this book, Meet Kirsten, for this episode. Yeah, I think that my American Girl dolls are very like sensory and magical for me because I was at I was like four years old. I was at my grandfather's house We were about to leave. We, you know, much like Kirsten's trek to Minnesota, had to drive eight hours to Ohio. Um, Oh, my gosh. Eight hours when you're a kid is like your whole life. Right. And it felt like a long time. And I was always sad to leave because we didn't get to see them that much. And he told me to look under his coffee table and there was something for me. And there was just this big box. And I opened it and like. I don't know if it was my birthday or not, but like I didn't get gift like big gifts like that for no reason out of just like a total surprise. And it was this beautiful doll and I was so excited. And I just like remember sitting there and being like, I can't believe this is happening to me. And I was so in love with her. And I think that at that time you were kind of getting the doll that looked like you. And I think that's kind of was the assignment of Kirsten to me probably. Um, But I was still pretty young at that point. And I just like, you know, got in the car, took out her braids with suffocating speed. (laughs) You're like, these have to go. <laughs> yeah, now I know, but it's like cutting tags off the Beanie Baby. Yeah, and then I kind of got into the world and got the catalogs, and my parents wouldn't buy me all the dolls, but they would let me read all the books, and I kind of got really sucked into this world where you're sneakily learning about history by playing with dolls, and then you kind of play with them and their accessories and want to know more about them, and then, then you read the books, but you don't even realize you're absorbing information about like the Pioneer Era, World War II, or slavery, or whatever the issue was that they were tackling, and I just think it's a really brilliant period what Pleasant Roland tried to do. But I wanted to revisit Kirsten because my nostalgia of American Girl dolls is thinking back on how badly I wanted to rewrite Kirsten's narrative. Because when I got a little older and more shallow, like older meaning six, you know, like, You're like I, I'm a grown I, up. <laughs> yeah, depth is a journey. I didn't have the, yes. the I wasn't at a place where I was acknowledging her the, the plight of an immigrant. I was like 
Mm, she lives in a barn. I want to live in Samantha's Victorian grandmother's, you know, Grand Mary's bougie home. Mm. And I just wanted Samantha's clothes and furniture and lifestyle. And I almost resented Kirsten because, like, her toys were like a bucket, you know? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> what, yeah, like, her big accessory was a spoon. It just, like, wasn't that exciting for, like, a kid. But I wanted to revisit this book because... I think that I forewent Kirsten's depth and story and journey and importance in favor of a little girl just wanting like a brass bed. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I feel badly about how I really kind of trivialized her narrative and kind of just because I didn't like her accessories when I'd argue it's actually quite important and I didn't remember a lot about it. So I thought it would be fun to read this because I liked Molly and Samantha's books probably the best. But Kirsten, I just kind of had the doll, but like wrote her off a bit, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. So I was a Samantha for sure um, well, slash a Molly. <laughs> Thank you. I take that as a major compliment because Burnett, obviously. So I was assigned this Samantha Molly archetype, I guess. Um, I did have the dolls and I remember I read all of the Samantha books, all of the Molly books. I think I like dabbled in Felicity and Josefina. I'm ashamed to say, and I admitted this on our other American Girl episode, that nobody ever gave me any of the Addie books which I think is a whole other conversation to be had about the lack of representation in this brand and how it took almost 10 years for them to even introduce Addie to the lineup. Um, And I know that the brand was criticized a lot for that choice, as they should have been. And then I think I only read one of the Kirsten books. And I think I read the Kirsten book where she celebrates St. Lucia's Day. Is that I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it, but I remember finding it at the school library because the other books, like the Samantha and Molly, books I think I got as gifts like with the dolls so I had to go to the library for the other books and it was Kirsten's surprise that was the Christmas story Mm, yeah and I have this very vivid memory of picking it up from the school library because I had seen her beautiful like Santa Lucia outfit in the catalog yes (laughs) and I was intrigued I was like oh what is this what she wears for Christmas and of course it's this whole other holiday so I have very clear memories of that book I think maybe her mom has another baby in that book too Mm -hmm. but I didn't really know much about her otherwise and and I love what you're saying about the accessories because I remember feeling as somebody who didn't have the Kirsten doll that some of Kirsten's accessories were really cool. So she had that, didn't she have that really neat like blue wooden chest with like the really beautiful painting on it? I don't, <laughs> like now you would probably get something like that at like a vintage store and yeah, not, not very, as like, like fancy. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. Um, and I guess not as fancy as what Samantha was working with, with the brass bed. Fun fact, I had a cat that used to sleep in my Samantha bed, like, every night. That was her bed. Like the queen she is. I mean, I could only dream of sleeping in that brass bed. Or Felicity's uh, upholstered full canopy. I mean, a canopy bed is a, a, I feel like, was an adolescent girl's dream. (laughs) It really was. And I'm not sure why, because if I had one of those now, I would be fully claustrophobic. Every single night, I would wake up and feel like I needed to, like, tear it off of myself. Yeah, holy upholstery allergies. I'm just like thinking of the dust collection alone. Oh my God, the cleaning. This is what happens when you grow up. You can't appreciate the magic of the canopy bed because you're too worried about like dust mites and allergies and claustrophobia. Exactly. And I appreciate what you said about Addie too, because I will bring up and joke a lot about the American Girl dolls. I didn't have Addie. She was, came out in 1993. Yeah. And my, the bulk of my interest, I think was when the original like Molly, Samantha, Kirsten, even Felicity's a little outside of my realm of knowledge. My neighbor had Addie. I read her books and we would play with Addie a lot. And I have to say, looking back on the Addie books, they were written pretty, like they did a good job of of explaining the horrors of slavery in a way that a child would find palatable, but also recognizes wholly wrong and like abhorrent. And I, it's so interesting when you think about the diversity in the franchise and how in some ways it's really noble what they were doing in terms of trying to tell immigrant stories and that American girls all were different people with different plights. But then, yeah, their first black doll being Addie in 93, they didn't have another one until I think 2016 with Melody from Detroit. And I think, yeah, when it got bought by Metallic, the brand totally changed. And I don't know, it's kind of a funny thing where I'm so nostalgic and fond of the franchise as a young girl. And I respect parts of it, but I also have my like adult questions, I guess, um, in a sense, because it's like, yeah, it's really great what you're doing in this educational format, kind of sneakily teaching young women about the differences of 
growing up in America, depending on where you're from, but also there's such a high price barrier to entry. Yeah. <laughs> like anybody can read the books, but $98 for a doll in the late 80s, early 90s was a lot of money. If you factor in inflation, that's $168 in 2020 speak, which is oh, wild. Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. That's Yeah, that's a lot of money for a singular doll. And especially one that you watch your daughter rip the braids out of, tear the glasses off, whatever you're going to do to it. So, yeah, it's definitely interesting to look back on. And I think that I really enjoyed reading the book because it's designed to be historical, but it's told through the eyes of a child. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's an important thing I almost had to remember is to take off my like critics hat for a minute and just be like, what was the experience of this young woman coming to America? You know? Yeah. So for a little context, as you mentioned, this um, all the Kristen stuff was kind of part of the first batch of American girls. So Samantha, Molly and Kirsten, I keep saying Kristen curse. Like I don't actually don't have anybody in my life who's named Kirsten. I have only Kristen which it's my own mistake. I just need to rise above it and say Kirsten's name correctly. Kirsten. Kirsten. So Kirsten was one of the first three, along with Molly and Samantha. This book came out in 1988, and it was written by a woman named Janet Shaw, who seemed to have worked actually like really hard to get this gig. I found an article in the Baltimore Sun that was written in 1990. Seven that talks a little bit about her. Um, and I guess she had already seen the Molly and Samantha books come out. So Kirsten must have been like the third of those first three. And she heard that Pleasant Rowland was looking for a writer to do the Kirsten books. And at the time she was teaching creative writing at University of Wisconsin. And she threw her hat in the ring and, and I guess applied in some form or fashion. And Pleasant Rowland was like, no, you're like a really bad writer and gave her <laughs> writing lessons or kid lit writing lessons. And then she must have liked the updated writing uh, that she received from Janet Shaw and Janet Shaw got the job. But I found some interesting quotes from her where she was just talking about, as you're describing, like this sense of of learning to see the world through not only the eyes of a child, but through the eyes of a child in a time period that's completely unfamiliar to you. So she says, we were trying to say, if you were Kirsten, if you were nine years old in 1854, what would your life be like? Not who was president. This is not history, but it is the history of a young girl's life. In Kirsten's case, the larger issues are the Scandinavian immigration and the effect on Native Americans, but it is also the day-to-day life as she lives it. The circumstances of Kirsten's life are very different from that of her readers. Her daily life is extraordinarily rigorous. Her family is struggling to become Americanized and make a contribution to their new country. Her friend Marta dies on the journey from Sweden, which we have to talk about. Her Native American friend must move farther west, but the feelings she has are not so different, and the children who read these books identify with those feelings. And they have a tremendous curiosity about where their ancestors come from, and they want to understand the lives that have gone before. This is much more interesting to them than a list of battles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a really fascinating and important way to learn about history. And, and I think it's something that even I still take for granted. And I, I think something that's gotten me thinking a lot recently and, and sort of circling back to our conversation about Addie is that in this conversation about own voices literature and all of us needing to broaden the kinds of reading that we're doing, there's sort of this sub-conversation going on about how we need to not only read narratives about black people overcoming sort of these like these key moments in history that we're used to reading about like we need to not just read slavery narratives we need right, to not just right. read racism narratives we need to read about just living your life as a black person dating as a black woman like i've really enjoyed the past couple of months reading like chiclet and romance written by black women i don't know why i wasn't doing that before that's so ridiculous that i wasn't doing that before and i think in a similar kind of tangential way like why are we only learning about history a through the eyes of white men who are old enough to make their own decisions but b why are we only exposed to it in its sort of most milestone kinds of moments why don't we learn about the day-to-day lives i think that that at least was not how i learned history when i was a kid except for books like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think depending on where you grew up, you learn history very differently and you learn 
the version of the truth differently. Yeah. And I grew up in Virginia, 40 minutes from Colonial Williamsburg. My version of history that I was taught is so rooted in the American Revolution, Civil War. I know I learned very little about the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And um, I learned very little about the formation of America outside of the 13 original colonies. And even if I had learned like milestones of like the pioneer era and Kirsten, like I actually didn't my entire knowledge of like pioneers going west is like Oregon Trail yep. and Kirsten. And that's like so interesting to think <laughs> yeah. about. And living in Virginia, I feel like we, yeah, we talked so much about slavery and reformation and civil rights and, but in a way that made it seem like in the past, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's a reconciliation that I've been doing too, in terms of like the rose colored glasses stories are told through and it makes you less active and being preventative and anti-racist in your current life, assuming that things are a function of the past when a lot of these things are alive and well and important to be realistic about. So yeah, there's such a balance to strike of telling the stories as they were, but also being realistic about where we are. And it's, it's kind of a complicated thing, I'm sure, for to write to this age group um, in a productive way that's both accurate and actionable, you know? Well, speaking of which, Janet Shaw also said, writing for young readers is extraordinarily demanding. It is very good training for writing better fiction for adults. Children don't read your books to do you a favor. They want to be fascinated. They want to identify with the characters. They are not patient with digression or introspection, which I think kind of speaks to what you're talking about. Like, kids kids aren't impressed by, like, fancy language. They're not impressed by mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you trying to make some like greater social or cultural commentary through your writing they want a good story and quite frankly they sort of want the truth and I think one of the really unique things about the American Girl books and it's something that I found a lot in the think pieces that that I read in preparation for talking with you today is like these books sort of told kids the truth about history they they take off the rose-colored glasses i found this whole article on bustle called eight times american girl ruined your childhood Um, and it goes through (laughs) these like eight key books in the series in which like these books just totally blew your mind the addy one was was extremely affecting but even kirsten has her uh ruining your childhood moment when marta dies and each of these girls had to deal with something that the vast majority of young people, especially today, like can't even imagine. And I think that it's much more engaging for kids to be told the truth about history than it is for them to like hear their history teacher just be like, and these are the amazing things that Americans did. And especially right now, I think there is a call for us to take the rose-colored glasses off when we're talking to kids about history, especially with respect to this whole, like, look how awesome America is thing. I mean, obviously not everybody feels that way, but I think the American Girl series was maybe a pioneer, pun not really intended, in just telling the truth. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that it was kind of to your point about wanting the truth and uh, but needing to be, like, engaged all the same. When I was reading back through this, it kind of made me like as a grown woman reinterested and like digging up what I knew about even my own family. And I mean, uh, my family members immigrated from Ireland in the potato famine. And, you know, it's just something I wasn't like that. I don't know why it's like, I don't, I don't know a lot about it. And like, I don't think about it that much. And, but when you reread Kirsten's experience in that boat, you know, the way if you weren't didn't have the money for a particular tier of the boat and particular accommodations, like it's a rough trip and it's months long. And it's it kind of helped me re-identify with something I care about now as an adult, which is the history of my family and what got me here ultimately. And that's something that I didn't even care about the first time I read it. So it's kind of like almost cool that you can extract some different value from it at different ages of the truth, you know? Yeah, I was really interested in my ancestry as a kid for some reason. But now that you're now that you're saying this, I wonder if reading American Girl was any part of that, because I just had this obsession for a while. I had a, a very weird hobby of drawing family trees like I was probably six or seven. And everywhere I went, I would just draw family trees. And anytime I was with a new family member, I would draw a new family tree and ask Mm -hmm. them, like, if they could help me add on new parts to the family tree. And I would try to ask them where these people had come from. And my mom's family is Jewish. And so 
there were no Jewish girls in the original American Girl lineup either. I know they've since introduced a doll named Rebecca, who I believe is a first-generation Jewish girl living in America. But Mm -hmm. I was missing that. Like, that was something that, as a kid in the mid-'90s, I was able to identify as a gap in a franchise that meant something to me. And I wonder if reading these books about all these other American Girl backgrounds made me question where I fit in this history. Absolutely. And I think that showcases the importance of representation and diversity because the concept of of home, of origin, of belonging is something that's so sacred and important to a child. And whether you find it in different families, I think will establish in different ways, whether through your relatives, through faith, whatever. But I almost think of the interesting privilege of me not really worrying about where I was from, Mm. right? Because I didn't have generational oppression in the, you know, in the living generations that were around. And I think I'm thinking back through a lot of that now through a different lens. And I'm very interested in the lives of people, you know, especially reading back and understanding the quite difficult lives of people that, you know, came over in the 1800s, I'm like, I feel badly because like they put everything on the line. Right. And I just kind of disregarded it because um, over time, I don't know, it's it's an interesting thing, that t- thing to think back on. And to your point about um, wanting to identify yourself as an American girl within the series, I feel like I'm so curious to hear other people's experiences with this, because if you take them at face value, they're fun dolls to play with. But it means something a lot deeper to young women who want a sense of belonging and who want to be able to see themselves. And what bothers me is that before that, I don't know if this is good or bad, before that they decided to incorporate other dolls from different walks of life, they just made the option for dolls to look like you. Yeah. And I think something got lost there in wanting and being able to educationally get enveloped in somebody's story that could represent as many young women as possible, even if not entirely relevant but relevant to their ancestral journey in some way. I don't I don't know. I feel like I, I feel like when it got acquired by Mattel and when they made all the dolls look like you, I don't know if the historical component really maintained the strength. Well, it's because it, to me, it feels like instead of addressing the generational trauma that so many families have, experienced in telling these hard stories through their books and through the stories that surround the dolls, American Girl was like, here, you can just choose the skin tone that looks most like you. Which, granted, I remember thinking was really fun, and I poured over those catalogs for hours, like, trying to imagine what the different dolls could look like, but it almost feels like they shied away from what maybe felt scary to them and I think yes in some ways it mirrors the way a lot of people are feeling right now about like okay how much do I want to comment on something that feels scary or I don't want to be canceled like maybe American Girl was afraid of being canceled in a world pre-cancel culture it's ridiculous but I I would imagine that those are the kinds of conversations that were being had and, and even if it wasn't about being canceled like maybe they just didn't know how to tell these stories and I think that thankfully now we're learning that there is diversity to be represented within diversity like as we were talking about like right. sharing the history of black people isn't just talking about slavery and it's not just talking about racism it's talking about those things but it's also exploring narratives of black people all over and and what their lives are like like melody in detroit but why did it take so long between Addie, which is sort of just like the touchstone historical moment that I think all too often we we read as like the only black experience of slavery between that and then Melody living in Detroit in the aughts. Like there were so many missing links there. And it is a shame to see that they clearly just seem to have like shied away from the whole thing. I know. And I need to read more about it because when you said it's kind of like now people trying to delicately balance like what my role is in terms of speaking out or how involved I get, especially you never want to speak on somebody's behalf or out of turn. And it kind of does seem like a weird near term solution to be like, okay, people want dolls that look like them. Let's just give them a -a Build-A-Bear option to make a doll that looks like them, Mm -hmm. not realizing it's not actually about just looking like you. It's about representing 
who you are and where you're from and learning more about how you, somebody that's familiar to you came to be an American girl and why that's important and why your story is important and to kind of draw some sort of meaning or origin from these dolls. And I think that's where it started. And I think like anything, it gets a little bit soiled by consumerism, right? Mattel. American Girl became a, it became a retail venture. Yeah. It's kind of a funny thing to look back on because like we're talking about, I have so many more academic thoughts about it as an adult, but as a kid, it's like I never know where to come from. As a kid, I could just joke about it forever mm-hmm. because I was such a conspicuously consuming monster that wanted pretty things. But I took away from it a lot that I didn't even know I was getting. So I guess at the end of the day, at least in the early phases, I did learn a lot from these young women. And I think as Molly, especially growing up in an era of the area of the country that only focused on like a lot of colonial and civil war history, most of what I know about World War II, I honest to God learned from Molly. I really learned to touch. That was like a book that really went into war Mm -hmm. in a way that I don't think that I had really understood what it would look like in your day to day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about the Molly series a ton because she was just like a little bit more relatable because she was made maybe because she was closer in era. But, you know, she wanted she had stick straight hair. Wore she wore glasses. Color, curly wore glasses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She <laughs> wasn't like, quite as perfect. Struggles, yeah. yeah. She wasn't quite as perfect as the rest. I, yeah. I actually found that in reading this Kirsten book, though, I felt like this was an immigration story, even that I didn't grow up hearing about as much. So Kirsten comes from Sweden because of a lack of good farmland in in Sweden. And her uncle has gone to America. And um, after a few years of living there, he writes back to his family and is like, farmland here is great. You guys should totally come. And I don't want to sound ignorant, but I feel like my history education somehow skipped that very specific immigrant narrative. I think I learned a lot about, I mean, I I feel like a lot of the education that we had about why people came here was related to religious persecution. I don't remember that much of this kind of family being talked about. And it feels silly to be like, yeah, these, this like white family, like, I know that there are a lot of white families represented in our history, but this Larson family represented a piece of the overarching immigrant narrative that was a little bit new to me, or at least that I I had never gotten a chance to really dive into. And I was raised in Pennsylvania, so really, like, we went hard on Ben Franklin. We went hard on Valley Forge. (laughs) We went hard on all of that kind of stuff. So this, I actually learned something from this book even now and it got my wheels turning about one more reason that America was appealing to immigrants even all the way back in 1854 and I I think that this book because it's an immigrant story is still really resonant in 2020 and sadly we are still having a lot of the same conversations about what it means to come here and to be treated fairly and as though this is your home and so I just think it it struck a chord with me maybe more than I thought that it would. We read the first Felicity book a couple of months ago on the podcast and it didn't really like resonate with me in a way that felt like modern and important at a contemporary level, but this did. Yeah, I agree with that. And I almost chose to extract meaning from it that transcended the character's origin Yeah, in terms of understanding and really putting myself in the position of a person that for one reason or the other came here for hopes of a a better life in some way, left everything they knew behind, narrowed down all of their belongings, and had the most utterly complicated, lengthy, intense journey just to even get here, much less assimilate into the culture. And it, it kind of is so layered because I forgot that Kirsten's best friend was singing Bird, a Native American who ultimately gets pushed out. I didn't even under, like at the time I was just like, yep, that's what happened. People came to the new land. Mm-hmm. I was like six. I just heard about Thanksgiving. Like I didn't, I wasn't really thinking critically about these things, but it's so interesting to revisit. And yeah, I agree. I, I thought, I actually found this more educational than I remembered. And even in the context of just a Scandinavian family and that not being necessarily a disenfranchised group in modern right. times, especially, it was a good vehicle for me to think about the realities of having wherever you come from with minimal resources and income, having a very arduous death could be knocking at your door at any moment journey for what you hope is a better life only to get there and for people to be utterly unwelcoming to you. Right. And to not and to just look And Kirsten 
recounts her story of getting off the boat in New York and being lost in the crowd and like people just don't even respond to her because she's speaking a different language. It's like she's invisible. And those are the themes that I'm like, well, this is what's important in terms of learning how we treat people and learning what's going on behind somebody who may look or seem or act or talk differently than you and why you need to be empathetic. And that's what I was kind of proud reading back this book in terms of the lessons that could be extracted from it. Yeah, that scene, it just it broke my heart. She gets off the boat. They've been on this terrible journey. Listeners, excuse any page turning, but I just wanted to read a little bit from their like passage. Please. Because I know that the conditions were bad, but this is just... This is just really rough. Uh, The book says, As Kirsten climbed down the ladder into the hold, her spirits sank. Of course she didn't want to be washed overboard by the waves, but it was awful to stay in this small room below the deck. For more than two months, 20 Swedish families had been cramped together here. Each family shared one or two of the bunks that lined the walls, and everything they owned was stored in large trunks which stood at the ends of the bunks. The air smelled sour now, and it would be worse when people got seasick. No fresh air could come in when the sailors locked the trapdoor against the waves, and the hold was dark even in the middle of the afternoon. Just one oil lantern swung and sputtered over some tables in the middle of the room. Kirsten could barely see Mama, who was lying on her side in the narrow bunk she shared with Kirsten. So, so, so that's been her life for the last few months. She would almost rather risk being knocked over in a massive storm than go sit under the deck in these conditions. And I don't really blame her. They sound awful. So she's she's weathered this. She's so excited. They're going to get off the boat. And then she realizes this is a whole other set of threats and risks and things that I don't understand. And all that she has to trust is her parents. And I think as mm-hmm. adults, we forget, like when you're nine years old, you all that you can do is trust what your parents or your guardians tell you. And luckily, Kirsten does have these parents who are very loving and they are clearly trying to make a new wonderful life for their family. But of course, she gets off the boat and she loses them. They disappear into the crowd, and now she's she's really scared, and she has no mm-hmm. idea where she is. She can't speak the language, as you mentioned. She finally finds a woman who seems like she's going to be a little bit more empathetic and helpful, and I found an interesting tidbit that the author, Janet Shaw, when she was writing this book, her, I guess she has three daughters, and one of them was about nine when she was writing this, and she pulls her daughter aside and she's like okay so I am writing this scene and Kirsten just got off the boat and she lost her family and she can't speak to anybody she can't communicate what would you do and her daughter was like oh well Kirsten would just get a stick and draw a picture in the dirt (laughs) which I love that Mm -hmm. her daughter like helped her get back into that mindset of a nine-year-old but that's how Kirsten figures out to communicate with this woman who seems to be a little bit kinder than anybody else she's met so far and the woman helps her get back on track but these are just moments that I don't think we think about enough when we consider like just how hard it is to leave everything you have behind and come here like no matter what the promise is it's still really scary and it it was scary then it's scary now and I I just think that to read the shock that Kirsten experiences like you think everything's going to be great you think it's going to be this new life and then you get here it's like I still have so much to figure out and if I'm alone especially as a kid I have absolutely nothing Right. Absolutely. And I'm sure the kind of dichotomy between being told this is for the better, right. the hard times now are for this return. Kids don't have that kind of foresight and, and long term no. vision. And for one bad thing to happen after the next and for her to remain like loyal and faithful to her parents, one. But two, like uh, there was a couple. Pa- so you said you didn't read this. You, you didn't have a memory of reading this book before, right? No. I hadn't read it since I was a kid. And, like, there was a few passages that I was like, you know how sensory nostalgia is. It, like, washed yeah. over me. Like, when I reread the line, the air smelled sour. Uh-huh. It, I was like, oh, my God. I remember this so vividly. And I'm thinking, like, well, what does that mean? What does that smell like? Why would it smell that way? What would it like be like to be in such a closed quarters with so many people and the the scene where she's like it's a really beautiful and meaningful and not beautiful in like the aesthetic way but beautiful in terms of a highly detailed great imagery way where she's like has tattered clothes and she steps off the boat she doesn't feel like she looks as good as everybody her prized possession is this amber necklace she has she says out loud like just kind of you know she wishes she had dresses from the people like that they had on the ship and like kind of 
suggest she's self-conscious about how she looks. You know, then her parents kind of like quiet it. And it's an innocent thing a kid would say, not knowing that it might offend her parents. But I'm sure I'm sure I did that being like, I want Felicity and I want her now. And right. it's like, well, no, Santa maybe doesn't can't afford to get you, you right. know, like yeah. her away. And beyond that, that scene where she gets lost, it's like that feeling of like being in a grocery store or a mall or, or a crowd or a sports game and losing your parents is so vivid and so scary. And and she cries for help and people laugh at her. She sees pigs. She trips. A dog's biting her. No one speaks her language like reading back through that chaos very much elicit it was it solicited this fear I had as a kid of getting lost and um, it was very sensory to me in terms of that how challenging that would be not speaking the language and I remember as a kid I never put myself in the situation where I couldn't speak the language until I read that and it's kind of interesting to think about now as people are so often especially in the media speaking English is kind of like a way I think you could use to like be offensive or you're like, can you please speak English or people that are, you know, at least growing up, you see people be more aggressive with those that don't have English as their first language. And this is like a great entry point of empathy in terms of what it would what that would feel like. It's sadly a great introduction to xenophobia and what it oh my looks God, like. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, even this very cute, I'm sure, blonde white girl is exposed to xenophobia simply because she opens her mouth and people think that she sounds funny. It's terrible. And then, as you said, to picture her, you can just feel her embarrassment and her humiliation. I just, like, felt hot. Like, I felt like I was getting sweaty (laughs) thinking about it because I get embarrassed very easily. And I just, oh... I could feel it. And and then they have to get on a train. So they've made it to New York, but New York isn't their ultimate destination. They're going to Minnesota because that's where I just, we just did an episode about a series of unfortunate events. And so I keep wanting to say Count Olaf, but they're going to see Uncle Olaf. Yeah. They're going to Uncle Olaf's farm in Minnesota because they've heard that the farmland there is great. And he's married to Ann Inger and, and they have two daughters who Kirsten's very excited to meet and hopefully befriend. So they have now a very long journey to Minnesota. It's not enough to just be on this miserable boat under the deck in the sour smelling air for weeks on end. What blew my mind, and I guess this is a thing, again, you take for granted, Kirsten didn't even know what a train was. Mm-hmm. She had no idea. She couldn't even, she couldn't picture it. And and Marta says to her when Kirsten asks her like what they can expect, she says, I don't know exactly. My father says it will make a loud noise and a lot of smoke. We might be afraid of trains. Like their parents haven't even seen a train, let alone been on one. And so not only are they subjecting themselves to this like really long trip that's going to be exhausting and potentially dangerous but they're putting themselves in completely unknown situations and yes part of this is the time period because the train was newer in 1954 than of course it is to us now in 2020 but there's there's a class thing here too where the only people who would have ridden on a train unless they were in sort of dire straits or immigrating would have been people with money like it wasn't a thing that you didn't just like jump on the Amtrak so it's it's just so extreme like these steps that they're having to take to get from one step to the next or from one destination to the next when you really think about what it must have felt like it's it's kind of overwhelming. And, and these parents, like, I assume these are, like, young parents. Anytime I read a book from this era, I'm like, hey, these these parents are probably younger than I am with all of these children. And they're, like, trying to shuffle them onto a train. They're terrified. They have no money. They don't really know where they're going. What if one of the kids gets sick? Like, it just gives you such an appreciation for everything that we have in 2020 and I know that not everybody has these things but for me it just it's a very healthy sense of perspective for sure I think that's like an interesting what I was probably a universal epiphany you have when you're you know maybe in your later 20s your 30s is that you kind of like realize that when you were growing up your parents were growing up Mm -hmm. but also raising you and you put yourself at the age you were and like I don't have kids yet but I'm older than my parents were when they had kids and Mm -hmm. I'm just like it's kind of a mind app of like (laughs) yeah I just crossed that point too like I just turned I just turned 30 and my mom was 20 so I I didn't just cross this but I, I sort of recently crossed it I just turned 30 my mom was 28 when I was born my husband's 31 my dad was 29 when I was born and it, it is a mind F for sure. Because I'm like, my mom was doing all of this when she was my age. Like, sometimes walking my dog feels like a lot. 
I know. I'm like overwhelmed by like what to have for dinner. Like I just, everything feels overwhelming in this domestic sense. And I like what you said with a healthy dose of perspective, because it's like not only the realities of her parents' age of having to be brave and just convince your children this is the right thing to do, Mm -hmm. even though they were horrified and running out of money, but also just the rigorous nature of the day to day, not only when they were on their way, but got to the farm. But I guess to what we need to cross, which is the literally one of my first um, experiences with the realities of mortality, mm-hmm. which is uh, they so they so they took a boat from Sweden to New York. Then they took a train from New York to Chicago. Yes, correct. And mm-hmm. then a river boat from Chicago to Minnesota. Right, which Kirsten was really excited about. Like, she was really into the idea of the riverboat. She thought it looked really cool, and I guess after being on a scary train for a couple of days, a boat maybe doesn't seem so bad. So, And then she's reunited with Marta, which is really exciting, but things which, are going to take so a turn. Sweet. It takes a turn, and it's sweet, too, because mm. When I was reading about the book, maybe I was reading something about Janet Shaw and she was saying like one of the existential questions I wanted people to ask from it is like, what is home? Mm -hmm. Like, what does it mean and where is it and how do you establish it and how do you find a sense of it? And this is something I struggle with as an adult, having not lived technically at home since I was 18 and then my parents leave my version of home and, you know, whatever. And it's not in the same way, but it's an interesting question. And they they but with through that lens, you read the book and Kirsten makes it very clear when she does and does not feel comfortable in Chicago when she's with Marta and her parents she's eating meat and potatoes she feels at home and that's like her first like okay I'm okay I have the people I love I'm in a new place but I have the foods I love and the people I love and the language I can speak like all is well things are good and like you said yeah it it takes a turn when they get on the riverboat and for me this is where the um so I, I have the Meet Kirsten book at my parents' house that I started when I was there. I left it there. Then I had to finish on the Kindle, which doesn't have the original photos mm. or the original illustrations. Yeah. The illustrations in Marta's story were huge for me. because hmm. I And I started to like look them up as I was reading because it's very sensory for me and real because they the way they explain her her death is um, it, 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 it's it, I, I teared up reading it now. Yeah, so we know that Marta has cholera. Cholera is like the major concern on the riverboat. Um, There's a lot of talk about who might have it, how you need to stay away from people who have it. And pretty soon after they board the riverboat, Kirsten is looking for Marta and her mom is like, no, you have to stay away because Marta has cholera. And I, I remember cholera being this sort of like through line of all of the historical periods that I learned about as a kid. Maybe it started with the Oregon Trail video game. Mm-hmm. Um, but cholera was just this like ever present threat for our ancestors, which is terrible to think about. And Kirsten doesn't understand. And it it's sadly like very resonant today because so many people like aren't able to be with their loved ones who are sick because they don't want to get sick and nobody really knows like what's going to happen next with the virus. So I was thinking about that a lot as I was reading. And again, Kirsten's nine years old. And so she doesn't really understand. She actually thinks that she needs to be with Marta to make her feel better. And she wants to help. Mm. Um, And again, you have to remember, like, this is a girl who has traveled across the world. Like she has become brave. Like she is this she has this independent spirit. She's toughening up. Like, she's been through so much, and she just wants to help her friend. And uh, Marta's mom tells her she has to stay away. And then there's this line, that, and I assume this is the one you're thinking of that broke your heart. It says, a gangplank had been lowered for some sailors who carried a wooden box on their shoulders. Sorry. I, no, it, but it's, like, so it's upset. Ter- like- it's so hard. It's Because that's how she finds out. She looks out, and she sees her friend's coffin being carried off the fucking boat yeah and like it it, it, there's like one illustration that shows kirsten like peering through a curtain yeah and and she describes watching marta like she's on a straw mat in the basement of a low budget river boat struggling to breathe moaning and trembling her mother's wiping her forehead kirsten says she has to stay away and so she goes away and the next morning she runs to the sick bay and marta's just not there yeah and then when she goes to the deck to find her is when she sees the sailors carrying a wooden box. And like that, I don't know, rereading that, it's not like anybody even broke the news to her. Right. Something about the box and the sailors and the stopping of the boat and her having to draw that own conclusion, I don't know, was very poignant for me to 
reread and it's kind of like she almost had to bury that sorrow because they had to keep their eye on the prize yeah they had to keep going they weren't in minnesota yet they actually had a long way to go yeah a long way to go and it, it almost was interesting like her father or papa told her like to stop crying but she noted that her mother let her you know what i mean mm-hmm. and that was really sweet too of like the way people respond differently to consoling somebody mm-hmm. is somebody might tell you please don't cry don't cry don't cry and you, you might receive it as like stop crying toughen up but it's probably that her dad didn't want her to be upset but she needed to be and her mom was empathetic and i don't know there was something really interesting and beautiful about that family comfort i thought was special and detailed and um yeah i thought it's funny because i these are the things i will laugh about when i tell talk about owning kirsten and being like a kid and be like oh man her friend dies like seriously samantha like you know goes horseback riding and ice skates like i don't want to do and eats pedophores yeah (laughs) yeah exactly But now reading it, it helped me have this much, much greater empathy for what she was going through. And I legitimately cried. Yeah. Well, and then and then they get off the boat and she's she has to continue, as you mentioned, like there's no she can't get off the ride. Like they're on the way to Minnesota. She's got to go. She's got to just do what Papa says. Everybody's doing what Papa says. They get off the boat and they realize that the only way for them to get to the farm is to walk to the farm. Like, they're not going to be able to take a cart, take, there's just no other form of transportation. So she's lost her friend, she's left everything behind, and now she has to leave the very, like, small amount of personal property that she has brought with her. She has to leave that behind at, like, the boat dock because they can't carry everything on their now treacherous walk to uncle olaf's farm so she has this doll named sari who is now really her only friend now that marta is gone and she can't even bring sari which i have to say felt unrealistic because i like to think that she could have like carried her or maybe put her in the little pocket where she holds the spoon that you referenced but i guess sari had to stay behind for dramatic effect and we don't know the same response yeah i was like you could have tucked her somewhere you could stuff her down your dress come on like let's be realistic be reasonable papa like just (laughs) like just let your kid be happy for five minutes she's been through enough she's grieving (laughs) she's grieving so she leaves sari and actually there's this like kind of hilarious cliffhanger in the last in the last few sentences where it's like sari is not here yet but i'm here so i'm here um or left we're we're meant to believe of course that sari is coming because she has other dolls to play with but the good news is after all of this they do get to the farm and it is really lovely when they get to reunite with people who speak their language i mean especially for kirsten this is the first time in months that she has not only seen adults who speak her language but that she's been around children outside of like a stinky boat who can just like naturally pick up what she's saying she can make a friend like she hasn't been able to introduce herself to someone new in all of these months and that's really powerful to think about like how important it is for children to just be able to make those connections and it it goes back to that idea of, of finding your home which I think really is the prevailing theme of this book and she's she starts to identify pretty quickly this place as her home and and the other girls let her wear their dress because mm-hmm. um she's obviously like so dirty and disgusting after all of this and there's this like really sweet kind of powerful moment where it says Aunt I know Inger. Exactly it's like so <laughs> cute yeah i feel like i'm making you cry which i didn't anticipate so she makes her entrance she's in her cousin's dress and Aunt Inger is like, oh, who is this? I barely recognize you because you were disgusting five minutes ago. And Mama says, why don't you recognize Kirsten Larson, my American daughter? Which is mm-hmm. like the most American girl line in the history of American Girl. Mm-hmm. I know, but it makes me misty just because, not because of like the American of it all, but because the entire time Kirsten's like, she just like wants to fit in or wants to appear. And it's not like, it's not like that motive it's like you don't want her to feel like she needed to fit in you don't want her to have to rid herself of of what makes her uniquely her to assimilate into a new culture but as a young girl she just really wanted to blend in and she had such a sensory experience of 
feeling like she didn't belong when she got to New York in her, they kind of describe her in her monologue so often of wanting to be like seem American. And yeah, it's like a really simple scene of Von Inger like feigning surprise and her mom comforting her and taking her hand and saying, this is my American daughter. And I just, I don't know. I, I thought it was really special. And even though it was textbook pandering to the entire right. point of yeah. the book, yeah. I, I was, I kind of like didn't see it coming in a way. I was like, oh, that's really sweet. That's a poignant moment where Kirsten could have external validation that she belonged, she fit in, and this is where she was supposed to be, which at that age is really all you're looking for. Well, I think to hear your mom say that at that age yeah. is like really important and special. And then she thinks to herself, I'm home. My cousins live right next door. We'll be friends. Mm-hmm. So cute. And there was even a moment when they first arrived at the farm that I identify with it because I was really shy. And in my head, I had these dreams of like, I was going to be friends with these people and we would do these things. And I kind of like would daydream about all of the uninhibited fun I would have with my friends. But when I would get in front of people, I was so shy and I would hide behind my mom. And when all Kirsten wanted was to arrive at this farm and to be friends with these people, but she like hides behind her mom and like slowly warms up. And I don't know, I think something about that to warm my heart thinking about being a child who has like big dreams and big thoughts, but in practice is still really trying to figure out their way in terms of how to best socialize and assimilate themselves and you're so self-conscious of how other people perceive you in any capacity but especially in this one and it was kind of a beautiful acceptance that she was welcomed with when she saw her family yeah I think there's a lot about those last couple of moments that it feels very universal and relatable for people because I think even people who aren't shy like still have these moments of not being sure if they're welcome in a particular group in a particular setting and I think even adults who have grown up to be a little bit more extroverted can remember moments of feeling in their childhood like they needed to hide behind a parent and I think that that was really well illustrated in this book so I enjoyed that as well on the whole Kate how do you think that this reading experience compared to when you were a kid or how did it maybe compare to your expectations of what it would be like to come back to this book? So kind of like I said earlier, when I was a kid, I feel like I, it's a funny thing where I feel like the smart thing was like to lead with the dolls and have the books fill in some of the kind of white space of like wanting to know more about your doll Mm -hmm. and the toy engaged me, but the book maybe you want to know more. Now it would be like book first, doll is merch. But the leading with the doll thing is interesting to me because I definitely was more enveloped in other dolls' stories. Kirsten's was a little sad for me. And I'm a very sensitive person as a kid. I don't think I I could handle the Marta stuff well. And even though, like, Samantha's orphan, like, being an orphan was sad, I was worried about Molly's dad away from war um, before I read the Addie books. And, uh, and I hadn't had Felicity at this point yet. I really wrote off Kirsten's struggle because it was a little hard for me to face and I just wanted to have dolls that like did glamorous things but I had a completely different experience this time around just like respecting and understanding the plight of an immigrant having an empathetic lens on not just her but to your point her parents mm-hmm. I didn't think twice about her parents right like they're props yeah yeah they were props I really thought through like the realities of months and months and it's like people have trouble getting their kids to like sit down for 20 minutes much less four months of like arduous travel and just yeah I mean I it was a it was good for me to revisit and to appreciate her for who she was and what she went through even though I wrote it off in favor of a canopy bed you know and pedophores I was really into Samantha's pedophores clearly and I remember I remember I think you could buy like the pedophore props for the doll and I remember them on the cover of one of the books, and there were lots of illustrations of the pedophores, and I was very fixated on them. But I agree, and I think Kirsten's story has a whole other level of resonance, especially now, and I really appreciate you reading it with me for this episode. Is there anything else you've been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Ooh, that's a good question. If I'm being honest, the last thing I... So it's an interesting, as I'm sure you understand, position to be in when you're job and your interests intersect. Yeah, it's a really weird position to be in. 
And yeah, and so now I kind of, when I'm reading, it's reading to know I'm going to be talking about something. And admittedly, the last book I read slash listened to on Audible was Finding Freedom, (laughs) that book about Harry and Meghan's ultimate uh, stepping down of the royal family, which I did an episode on. But it's funny because I was thinking the other day, I need to read something that I do not have to podcast about for the sake of reading. But then it becomes, if I have to podcast, I'm going to talk about what I'm doing. So Yeah, it's <laughs> a hard trap to get out of, for sure. But I, I understand. I do want to read Fighting Freedom. So thank you for... It actually, I really enjoy... I, I had a great time. Sometimes you need something dishy. Mm-hmm. And it was a it, it was a highly biased, you know, albeit, but... Um, very descriptive story of their courtship in a way I hadn't heard it before. And I just, I don't know. I love a, I love a pop culture nonfiction take. <laughs> Me too. Well, cause I have all my podcast reading and then I'm also in grad school. So it's a lot of like required reading. So right now, anything that I'm picking up just for myself is, is dishy and fun and light and it's everything that I'm looking for. So I'm going to add Finding Freedom to my personal list. I'll include a link to that in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to meet Kirsten for those who want to, take a look at that book again and of course a link to be there in five kate's podcast i've had so much fun chatting with you thank you for taking a very deep dive into a book that i believe it's like 70 pages who would have thought when we were eight nine ten years old just wanting these fancy beds for our dolls that we would one day have this very in-depth intellectual conversation about their histories a a true pioneer she was she really was thank you so much kate (laughs) thank you bye SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>